O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Salah. That's Psalm 3, which along with Psalms 1 and 2 are the Psalms appointed for today, Monday, November the 28th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Just for the context of that psalm, it's, we're, we're told that it was um, something David wrote when he was uh, fleeing the city when Absalom, his son, decided on re- uh, revolting against him. And so as David flees the city, supposedly this is the psalm that he wrote to discuss with the Lord the way he was feeling about what was going on at the time. Amos comes in the, the lessons that we have today are Amos 2, 6 to 16, 2 Peter 1, verses 1 to 11, and Matthew's Gospel, twenty chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. So Amos comes at a time, and he says, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm just a guy who was a vine dresser that the Lord spoke to and told me to come say a few things. And so he's speaking to a very prosperous people. And they believe that their prosperity is a mark of God's love for them and God's concern for them because he is blessing them. Therefore, they must be doing well and being righteous. Can you imagine where anybody would get that idea? I mean, it's it's a message that gets preached all across America now. Um, it, but it, it was the message that they believed, and we know it because we see it again and again. We see it in the book of Job. We see that God promises that, that if you do these things, then I will bless you and everything will go well. Well, sometimes the land is so blessed that it blesses them in spite of. But now Amos comes with judgment. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because you've done these things. The punishment is going to happen. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and a father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So they, what he's saying is that you've neglected me. You have treated me with contempt. You have treated my law with contempt. You have treated the righteous with contempt. You have treated the poor and the needy with contempt. And so you, you don't even care. You don't worship me at all anymore. You don't care. My name has been profaned all over the earth because of the way my people are acting. They're taking advantage of the poor by, by they will take a garment in pledge for a loan that they make to the poor, and then they'll go sleep on that when they're supposed to return it at the end of every single day so the person can keep warm in the evening. And so he, he's saying that, that they have disregarded him and treated him with utter contempt. And then he goes on to say, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? 
So what he's saying is, is that everything you have is a result of what I did. I drove out the Amorites and destroyed them before you, and I brought you out of that incredible kingdom of Egypt. Did you forget all these things? Which is exactly what Moses said they would do in Deuteronomy 8. He says, I know what's going to happen here. When you come into the land, what's going to happen is, is that you're going to forget him. You're going to forget everything that he has done, and you're going to start taking credit for everything, and you're going to forget him. And, well, that's exactly what did happen. And so, so he says, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites, which those, they were the ones who would have taken the vow to abstain from wine and women and all that. And so that's Samson took a Nazarite vow. John the Baptist took a Nazarite vow. They took perpetual Nazarite vows as opposed to most people who took it for a season of time, sort of like a fasting thing. They wanted to, to keep pure before the Lord for a period of time by separating themselves from all those other things. And he, but he says, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying you shall not prophesy and what he's saying here is is that with that thing about you know i drove out the amorites before you and then i raised you up and brought you out of egypt it's like the old bill cosby line to his son who he's mad at he says i brought you into the world i can take you out of it and that's exactly what god's saying he says behold i will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life he who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. <clears throat> and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. In other words, it's coming. Justice and judgment is coming. It's coming to the house of the Lord, to the people of God. And it will be swift, and it will be sure, and no one will escape. Did y'all get that? I mean, it's as clear as he could possibly be, and, and he, he states his case specifically as to why he is against them. He states his case then on, on why he is the one who should judge them because of what he's done for them, and then unequivocally says, it's coming. It's coming. In the gospel lesson, what we see is Jesus is coming. And John the Baptist had proclaimed that he would, that, that when this one comes, he would come in judgment. And yet Jesus didn't come in judgment, and he didn't come to be the Messiah that everybody was looking for. What he came to be was the Messiah that everyone needed. And so what we see is they're, they're coming, he and the, the apostolic band that's with him, along with all the pilgrims who were coming into Jerusalem from the north. So Jesus has come down from Galilee, and he's come through Jericho, and now he is coming close to the city, and he, they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. So he's just outside the city, although the city boundaries are extended out to the Mount of Olives for Passover, because people have to be in Jerusalem for this feast in order for it to count for them, having done their duty and kept their kept the commandment of God to be there, so they had, but but there was not enough room in the city for all the people who would come at this point, and so they had to extend the city limits out to the Mount of Olives so people could camp and stay out there during the time of Passover. So they get into that area, and Jesus sends two disciples, saying to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her." Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a beast of burden. So this is Zechariah 7, this fulfillment of that word that, that the Messiah would come into town on a donkey, on a beast of burden, which is different from coming in town on a horse, which is a beast of war. And so Jesus comes in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, and he comes in this way, this peaceable kingdom that he's prepared to establish. But the problem is, is that I say peace, peace, and they are for war. And so they want him to be a certain kind of Messiah, the one who comes in and, and establishes the kingdom of Israel, and probably along the way of doing that, he will establish those people who are leaders in the kingdom now, who are leaders in Israel, and, and yet he doesn't seem to respect them in the proper way. They're the ones who give authority to do the things that he does, and he does them without their authority. He does the things that the Father tells him to do, which comes up against, rubs against, their way of doing things and their way of understanding the law itself. But, but the problem, essentially, if, if it would be boiled down to one basic thing, and that is, is that they're failing to love God and love their neighbor. They're, they're keeping commandments simply for the only reason would be to feel good about themselves and to believe themselves to be righteous because they believe they were keeping the commandments. Well, that, that's not the point. The point, as Jesus has answered when, when asked what was the uh, first and great commandment, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so they're failing to do these things, which is exactly the same thing that Amos charged them with at that time. They're whitewashed sepulchers, as Jesus says. And so they don't want him to be the kind of Messiah that he's coming and claiming to be. So the disciples went and did as, as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is, the, this is a welcoming of a king. Is what's going on here. There's a, there's, it's called a parousia. And so what happens is when a king comes into town, this is the way that that king would be greeted. He was the way he would expect his subjects to greet him. And here the people do. And the crowds that went before him and then follow, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're recognizing him as the son of David, which is a messianic term. And Hosanna is a word in Aramaic that means, Lord, save us. So they're asking him to save them, and they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Again, these are it's not just what they do, but it's also what they say that says, this is our king. That's who he is. This is the king. He is the son of David. He is the messianic king who has been promised to us, and Hosanna in the highest, save us in the highest. They're crying out to the Lord, thanking the Lord for sending this messianic king. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I find that a really interesting response. The way they've hailed him as he comes in is Hosanna to the son of David. They're greeting him as Messiah, this messianic king. It was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy given to David that there would be one who always sat on the throne. And so the Davidic dynasty is being restored, they believe, in their proclamation as they come in. But once they get into the city, uh, 
they're asked who this guy is, and they they identify him in a very strange way, in my mind. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, nobody expected great things to come from Nazareth in Galilee. It's, a, it's just a very strange way of answering that question. Why did they not say, this is the one we believe is the Messianic king? It's, in, it's an interesting thing because they, you have to know that his fame had gone before him, and yet they're a little safer, let's say, in their proclamation when they answer that question. In the epistle, Second Peter 1, 1 to 11, Simeon Peter, he's identifying himself, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. I love that line. Right, as Paul's way of saying the same thing is to to always address the people that he's writing to as brothers, and so he's addressing this thing and flattening those distinctions um, between apostle and people. He's flattening all those distinctions, and, and and it's exactly what Peter says here. They have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. None of us rise above that level the people who have obtained a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's that, that, that we all stand in that same place. doesn't matter whether apostles, prophets, teachers, uh, evangelists, pastors, whatever. We, we all stand in that same place. Not one person rises above another in the kingdom because Jesus so far outstrips everything else. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It's a powerful statement that that Peter's making there, that we've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, what he's saying is is that, that we are intended to have been changed. We're intended to be made new. Our desires should be different. They should be different from what they were before we came to this saving knowledge, and they should be different from people who don't have that same saving knowledge. He said that's corruption. For this very reason, make every effort—I love this. This is a great little list, I think. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue— in other words, don't don't you're not adding to faith; you're supplementing your faith with this. In other words, it's an outworking of faith. So, if you have faith, then you should also have virtue, and 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 virtue supplement that with knowledge. He says, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. There's a, a ascending hierarchy here that's going on. So you've got faith is the basis of all things, and then virtue, doing the right things, and then supplement that with knowledge, knowing what the right things are, self-control, not doing the wrong things, steadfastness, persevering in that, godliness, becoming like him, 
more every day, and then with brotherly affection, and ultimately with love. And Paul does the same basic thing when he's in 1 Corinthians 13, when he talks about the gifts, and says, if I have all these things but don't have love, I'm just a clanging gong. That's all I am. I'm just a noisemaker. And so Peter gets us there in this same way. But but I like the ascending hierarchy here that he gives us, from faith to virtue to knowledge to self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and ultimately love being the highest of all those things. And so the virtues can consist in every single one of the things there, right? So it's knowledge, self-control, steadfast, godly, brotherly affection, love. And so he's calling us to be more and more like Jesus himself through the indwelling power of, well, Jesus himself in the Holy Spirit. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or fruitful or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, choose these things, pursue these things in order that you might know more and in order that you would be effective and fruitful for the kingdom. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We're like the people that Amos is speaking to. They, they had forgotten that God was the one who drove out the Amorites and who brought them out of Egypt and gave them the land. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. Whoever lacks these qualities, whoever is failing to pursue godliness in their lives, is so nearsighted he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We, we tend to look back on grace as only applicable in the hour I first believed, and after that, pretty much we've got it ourselves. Uh, no, we always stand in that same place where faith is the only thing we have to offer. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Well, that's a heck of a promise. Maybe we should take that promise and run with it and pursue those very things that Peter tells us to. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If that's your goal, Pursue it with all your heart. Pursue those virtues and those qualities that Peter lists here in order that we not be disqualified by who we have become. And so it's all about transformation. It's all about right now getting on our knees and thanking God for the coming of Jesus Christ into the world as we look forward to his coming again. Do we proclaim him as simply a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee Or do we proclaim him as the coming messianic king who will rule forever and ever?